Hello and welcome to Everything Considered. My name is Gautam. And my name is Samson. And today we have another episode of On The Fly For You, where I bring up something that's been on my mind recently, and Samson and I will have a totally unrehearsed conversation where we explore it and see what new understanding of the world we synthesize together. There's no script, no agenda, and no end goal. On today's episode, we're going to be continuing the conversation uh, that we left off in the last episode about food. And today we'll be delving a little bit more into the neurobiological aspects of it, as well as the nostalgic aspect of food and uh, the smell of food and certain food preferences as well. So uh, with that, uh, let's talk a little more about food. Tell me more two things. One is the innate biological happiness I get almost from when there are these kind acts of food benevolence, if I may, and uh, how you've experienced that is like people buying you appetizers or or something like that. And one way I've seen similarly food being the vehicle for that kindness is I have one friend who whenever I go out to eat with him, he will always serve me first. And Mm. especially when we're eating family style, uh, he'll always like, you know, spoon soup into my bowl first or, or something like that. <laughs> Are they going to say like, oh, airplanes coming in, got them open. Why? <laughs> spoon it directly into my mouth. <laughs> so it's that motherly attitude that he has towards me. <laughs> but actually. When he mama birds the soup into my mouth. But to a certain extent, it is kind of motherly to like serve others first. Uh, maybe not directly into their mouth, but onto their plate. And. I, I've always respected him for doing that, and I've I've pushed myself to to do that as well. Now that I've seen him do that, and how much how much that warmed my heart when I when when he did that for me, and so that's one way that I've felt that food or in 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 the w- with food as the medium for this kindness. Not he's not like by, like we're still splitting the food and all, but he is essentially prioritizing me, you know, and to a certain extent when someone else is buying you appetizers and stuff, they're, they're also kind of doing that where they're like, I do value like your, your health in, in terms of your full stomach. And the second thing is the more literal aspect of what, um, Ikenna and your other friend were doing where it's, uh, using food as a gift almost. And I've found that I really enjoy cooking for other people and, Whenever I have like someone staying over at my place or something like that, I really, really enjoy, you know, like making a double portion of breakfast or something like that. And yeah. oftentimes I find myself putting more effort into that than I normally would for my own breakfast. One, because mm-hmm. I feel like, oh, look at I, I'm I've given I've been given this like canvas for creativity all of a sudden. Let me like uh, make something amazing for this person. And second of all, I feel like I just have a biological drive to be like, let me provide for this person who's like staying at my place. And mm. I found that like even for when I have time, like if uh, uh, if it's uh, like someone else's birthday or something, something else like that, uh, more so than giving gifts, I would love to like bake a cake or, or something like that. Obviously, I don't really bake many cakes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but um, w- one thing, uh, a recent example is um, I was making these really interesting uh, oat and blueberry. Uh, this is what I was discussing with you earlier, where I just like blended up oats and stuff and mix it with some fruits. Yeah. And uh, I can I can like you know put it in the oven or I can put it on the griddle or something like that, and it makes these like little pancake cookie brick things. I don't know. They're uh, pretty mm. non-specific in terms of their texture, but um, 
one thing that I, I thought of immediately as soon as I made like 40 of these was we have uh, a family friend who, who lives pretty close by and my mom wanted me to drop some stuff off at their place. And I was like, oh, why don't I just bring some cookies too? And my mom was like, um, I don't know if they're going to like them <laughs> because <laughs> they cater to my diet. But I was like, hey, you know what? Like I made them. I put a lot of love into it. We'll see. And they, and they did enjoy them or so they said. So... <laughs> Those are two things where one side of it is uh, it's not necessarily buying the, the action of buying the food itself, but the giving of food and just that action um, making me appreciate it so much. And then the second part of it is appreciating the the, the food itself and uh, buying food for someone else or gifting food to someone else or just giving food to someone else, you know, kind of mm. biologically a, a motherly thing uh, to a certain extent. But I'm, I'm curious to explore more about why food specifically kind of brings that out in us. Yeah, when you were describing that, I my, my head was going towards a, a motherly interpretation of that as well. Because if you think about, you know, before going to college, Think about any time you're eating, really, mm -hmm. at home. Like, who is making that food for you? Or who is providing that food for you? It's your parents. Mother uh, Earth. Yes. Mother <laughs> Earth. <laughs> sure. But but in general, it, it, it's your parents, right. like, either your, your mom or your dad, who is is making that dinner and is making that, that lunch. And mm -hmm. that's some of the, uh, the very warm association you have with home, right? Whenever you come back home after... Uh, after college or uh, during breaks or if you're quarantining, mm -hmm. right? And if you think about it like that, you know, once you go off to college and once you're no longer at your home anymore, that's the first time where you have to kind of feed yourself in some ways. And then right. for the most part, you are isolated in that sense mm -hmm. that, that you need to take care of yourself. You need to become independent. You need to become self-sufficient. You need to become your own mother. <laughs> you need to become your own mother. Oh, or father. And um, I I wonder if, you know, in that simple act of someone else gifting you, you know, a certain food item or, or, or buying an appetizer for you, mm -hmm. if there is a subconscious association you have with home, with a family that then transforms the perception you have of this person as a stranger or an acquaintance to someone that is more intimately close to you, hmm. someone that that provides for you that takes care of you that uh is interested in your health and the associations the positive associations we have with family in terms of that kind of caretaking i wonder if that spills over into uh these people that we break bread with uh in a way that that really positively uh colors those interactions yeah in a sense they they literally become a provider, you know, or a caregiver when they when they give us that food. And I think perhaps automatically when they do that action with food, they in our mind become like a, a parent, essentially become like a guardian, you know. Right. I'm wondering if that could also be extended to the case of Stockholm syndrome, where you have someone who is the caregiver for someone else, but that other person is captive in, in their hold. And Stockholm syndrome may, I, I don't know much about Stockholm syndrome, but perhaps one thing is that the fact that this person is providing all of these biological, biologically necessary things over a long period of time, such as food, water, shelter, warmth, um, and maybe just not the emotional aspect of a familial relationship, um, that might actually lead to that biological dependence that is Stockholm syndrome. 
Hmm. Yeah, I could buy that. Yeah. When we think about food as something that we can tie in with nostalgia and with memories from the past of when we were eating something together, I think another interesting element of that is something that I thought about recently with my mom, where, uh, you know, my mom is a great cook and she uh, has this one signature dish uh, called a cutlet mm. that she makes. And, uh, you know, she had learned how to make this specific recipe from her mother. And there are a lot of uh, interesting moments where these uh, cutlets have come back into play in the sense that, uh, you know, when, when my dad first met my mom, uh, the the food that my mom and my grandmother had made for them as they were uh, chatting and as they were first getting to know each other was a cutlet. And mm. um, and now when we go back to India, sometimes my mom will will make a cutlet there as well. And um, and this is something that I so unique, so uniquely ascribe to her as uh, uh, this something something that has been passed down on her side of the family and something mm -hmm. that I, I really enjoy. But one thing that I wonder about is, you know, when, um, you know, in the distant future, uh, when my mother is no longer with us, you know, where am I going to get those cutlets? <laughs> and then I, I think about having a compulsion to want to learn how to make this cutlet mm -hmm. with my mother want to share that experience with her because I think cooking something like that, that has such a, you know, entrenched history with it, I think is something that is really uh, precious, but then also to also, to also um, keep a piece of her uh, constant through mm -hmm. food as in this one very specific item that is so unique to her to, to keep that for, for my kids to have, my kids uh, crave this, you know, beef and potato fried dish that is that comes from our family in India, the special recipe. And to, and to have mm -hmm. that almost be a, uh, a family tradition of something that that really uh, preserves and um, I think to some extent memorializes a, a person and a tradition and a family in some way through food. By, by bringing that uh, that sense of nostalgia and having that potentially go through multiple generations. I would love to find out the origin of the cutlet. Where, when did it first start? You know, it could be a, an interesting documentary from the perspective of the cutlet. Yeah, that would be. That would be. I, I should ask my mom more about that in terms of, like, did her mother just come up with it? Did she learn from someone else? Is it something that is passed down like that for her? And then getting her sister's perspective and her other family member's perspective on the couplet. That would be that would be an interesting find. The the idea of food being passed down is something that I've I've thought about before and recipes especially. Um I've I've thought about in the um context of nutrition because a lot of people say like, oh, you know, health is genetic and health is like passed down in the family. So, oh, my, my parents had cardiovascular disease or were obese. And so I'm destined to get that as well. And to a certain extent, there are probably uh, genetic predisposition factors uh, that, um, that play into that. 
But the other thing that um, gets passed down is recipes, you know, and the, the recipes and the food you cook and how inextricably linked, you know, food and culture is and culture is to families uh, makes it so that those recipes and, and the food you guys make in a culture uh, could also be things that are passing down health and disease. Um, and <laughs> I don't, I don't want to think about what, what diseases these cutlets could be causing, but <laughs> I, I think all over the country um, and all over the world, you see how uh, cultural dietary decisions uh, play a role as well in, in the health trends. So uh, cultures that have more higher fat, higher salt diets are more likely to have uh, higher incidence of heart disease, et cetera. Um, I do briefly uh, want to um, actually, well, well b- b- before I move on to, to that next thing, I, I wanted to know if you had any thoughts about this passing down of recipes, because I know this, the, the, the Susan's killer cutlet is one uh, thing that has stood out in your mind. There are other specific foods that stand out to me that are either like linked to a certain person uh, or linked to a certain event or something like that. And the the one I can think about uh, off the top of my head is my um, mom makes a very typical Tamilian dish uh, that is a puree of snake gourd uh, that is then uh, seasoned and then you mix it with rice and eat it. And what is what is snake gourd? It's a type of gourd that is very long and snake like. Uh-huh. <laughs> that makes sense. Very descriptive. Um, so so she makes uh she makes she makes this puree and uh the first time that I recall having that is during a, an event that we had at my uncle's house when when I was a child and so I refer to that <laughs> dish as the name of that event that that, that we were having <laughs> but I wanted to know if there was anything like that that comes up in your mind hmm Interesting. There, there is something like that that comes to mind that is uh, specific to my brother. So my brother growing up, he was a very picky eater. And uh, for the most part, he would eat the same thing every day. Uh, for dinner, he'd have this combination of rice and beetroot and carrots and yogurt and eggs. It was a very strange combination <laughs> of this kind of gruel that my mother would make. But that was her way of trying to make sure he gets some kind of nutrition because everything else he ate aside from that one dinner was just pizza for the most part. Hmm. And um, when we went to India, uh, that was something that he struggled with because he didn't, he really didn't like eating a lot of the Indian food out there. So he would just not eat as much. And then my, uh, my mom's sister, my aunt, she heard that, you know, Simon likes pizza and then she just gave a go at trying to make pizza herself. But it was this really in- interesting recipe that she had come up with because I think she had looked up a few things online, but what she had ended up making wasn't remotely like any kind of pizza that I've had in the U.S., hmm. but it was something that was still really, really good. I mean, it had the the staples of what you'd imagine a pizza has in terms of dough and sauce and vegetables and some cheese and things like that. Mm-hmm. But all of that was had its own Indian twist to it because mm. she was using uh, Indian ingredients. She was putting Indian spices. And because of that, she made this really amazing pizza that my brother just loved and was just eating that all the time. 
Hmm. And then more recently, um, uh, a few years ago, uh, for some reason, my mom decided to make it again. I, I guess because maybe because my, my brother had asked or she was just thinking about it. And she reached out to her aunt for that recipe or not her aunt, my aunt. She reached out to her sister for that recipe. She then got that recipe. And then now on a, on a fairly regular basis, she makes that pizza for my brother. I mean, now he's like 26. He's about to get married. <laughs> but my mom will still <laughs> make this pizza for him. He eats more things now, thankfully, but he still really loves that pizza. But my my mom will make that pizza and, and will give it to him. And then uh, he'll eat it throughout the week. But now it's slowly spreading as well because um, uh, when my brother's fiance heard about this, um, uh, my brother's fiance's mom was interested in making something like that as well. And then <laughs> she ended up getting the recipe and now they're making the same pizza that my aunt had made like 10, 15 years ago. All because Simon was a picky eater and they're, they're loving this like Indian version of this pizza. And now uh, two of my mom's friends have started making this pizza as well in the, in the past few weeks. And now it it's really interesting for me to see this this one recipe that someone in India made 10 years ago is now becoming uh, it's just proliferating in the United States. <laughs> and, you know, having these, uh, I'm sure, different versions uh, being made depending on who is making it, but still essentially coming from the same essential root of Simon being a picky eater. <laughs> there was one thing that you said earlier that um, got me thinking about as we're growing up, it's usually our, our parent or guardian caretaker who is providing food for us, you know, until college or until we, we uh, fly the nest. And until then, um, we've we've made this connection in our head between our parents and food and our parents being or our guardians being the the vehicle for food they're the ones who are always going to be bringing us this food and so they are not only a dependent caretaker but they are also the source of sustenance for us and one thing that came to mind is how what our parents feed us and this is much more from a, a scientific uh, perspective but what our parents feed us make an impression on the things we want to eat later. And this connects into uh, the conversation about uh, Simon and how he really likes specific foods, whether it be, you know, pizza or whether it be your whole family loving your mother's cutlet. Um, the food that our parents feed us from a very young age, I'm not exactly sure about the neurobiological mechanism, but it does become ingrained in, in our brain. And unfortunately, um, it becomes very difficult for us to divert from those specific food desires late, later on in time. And it's interesting that our parents are the ones who have such a strong say in what our food desires and proclivities are going to be for the rest of our life. And uh, to frame this in, in terms of an example, if let's say you grew up eating um, a lot of ice cream for dessert and not cake or, or anything else like that. And this is a bad example because all of these things are are naturally attractive to our brain. But let's say you, you grew up eating a lot of ice cream for dessert. Uh, later in life, when you want to have dessert or something, you are naturally going to gravitate towards ice cream because that was the preference that was made in your uh, mind much earlier on. If you were to think about other foods like broccoli, for example, that's the stereotypical, oh, children hate broccoli kind of thing, you know? <laughs> 
for for me, I I did not dislike broccoli uh, when I was a child, but since my parents would constantly feed me broccoli and feed it to me in uh, a lot of creative ways that come with our um, uh, Indian culinary background, I uh, grew up liking broccoli. And because of that, I like broccoli today. However, for most people who do not like broccoli or Brussels sprouts or, or things like that, uh, when they're a child, they will usually not pivot to liking those things uh, later. And if they have, and this specifically comes into the realm of the whole like vegetarian argument where if you grow up uh, non-vegetarian, you're more likely to live the rest of your life without becoming vegetarian because your, um, your food preferences are crystallized in your head at such a young age. Uh, if you look at it on the flip side, uh, those who do grow up vegetarian uh, are much more likely to have that freedom to stay vegetarian when, when they're, uh, as they grow up because they were exposed to what they were exposed to when they were younger and they didn't uh, grow up with a desire to eat meat, if that makes sense. So it's interesting that our parents are the ones who, uh, being this caretaker and being this provider of food through our entire childhood lives, uh, they're the ones who actually define those food preferences. Yeah, I th that's interesting. But I will counter to that and say that I think there is some more malleability than uh, than what you described there. Just thinking about my own situation, right? right. Like growing up for myself, you know, uh, we we ate meat. We ate. Uh, uh, we didn't really have any restrictions in our diet. Mm -hmm. But with with my dad working full time and my mom going to school full time, for the most part, whenever my brother and I would eat throughout the day, it was primarily based on convenience rather than out of health. Right. right? So. I think for a long time, I just didn't eat any vegetables. <laughs> it really. was just ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> there were stages after ketchup. I mean, uh, our breakfast was usually Eggo waffles mm -hmm. with uh, with something, whether it's like Nutella or uh, like maple syrup, something like that. Mm -hmm. Our lunch would be uh, maybe sometimes a Nutella sandwich or like chapati with jam in it right. or uh, uh, something small like that. And then when we came home, uh, at like around three o'clock, we would always eat the same Costco deep dish single pizza, mm -hmm. which we'd microwave for two minutes and then we'd go watch uh, Home Improvement at three thirty, <laughs> and that was just our usual schedule. And then at night, you know, sometimes we would mix up uh, what we'd eat for dinner because then our parents would be home. Mm -hmm. But even then, we would stay fairly consistent with what we were eating there. Right, but then. Uh, so I, I was pretty limited in terms of the things that I was eating uh, mm -hmm. growing up because of just the what what is the most convenient thing to have a third grader make for themselves, mm -hmm. right? And uh, then going to to college, I I didn't really have any real uh, structure initially in terms of how I wanted to go about putting food into my my body, right? Uh, so there, were, I remember the first time. I got groceries uh, my like sophomore year. My friend had driven me driven me to uh, Ralph's. Mm -hmm. I just ordered. It, it was like if you if you got like a nine year old to go <laughs> into a grocery store because then I just bought all of these useless things. Like I bought I bought brownies. I bought cookies. I bought uh, Tatino's pizza rolls and I, I all these like very silly things, right? And uh, just had a full like cart of junk food that i was so excited to bring back into our mini fridge and mm -hmm. and shared snack corner of our of my room with sahaj right 
But then uh, fast forward like two, three years later, mm-hmm. when, when you and I are living together, then I very much changed my diet, right? I, I lived for the most part vegetarian for the, for the, for those months, maybe like 80, 20 in that. Right. But, um, 80, 20. Uh, okay. Okay. 80, 20. I buy it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then, and then when I, I think that the marker for, for that would be after you had left and I was still in school for, for three months, uh, I was still making the stir fry, the, the stir fry, <laughs> like bagel combo that we'd always make. Mm-hmm. I would do the breakfast bread, peanut butter, blueberries. You know, I was getting my fruits and veggies and I was staying, uh, I was doing that consistently, mm-hmm. but, uh, which was an objectively much higher, better diet. But I, I think a big part of what made me do that was because it had, uh, looped back into the same kind of convenience that uh i was drawn to when i was a little kid right right? because i mean the stir fry the the blueberries and uh like breakfast uh those kind of things are are very quick meals right Right. they'll take 10 minutes to make it's filling it's nutritious Mm -hmm. and i think the uh expediency of those meals was what was able to allow me to uh mold myself into a different uh food intaker Mm -hmm. if that's if that's a word right right (laughs) I think you're you're totally right. There is definitely a malleability to that, and our our what we eat definitely does change over time. And I think that we are both very um, we are both very grateful and very lucky to have the um, the mental capacity to understand and the education to understand how what we eat affects us. And I think by virtue of one me showing you like hey dude i can put frozen vegetables in a pan and have stir fry in 10 minutes right yeah. um i think one like the logic of that convenience and then two the logic of the healthiness uh both you know one plus one made two in your head and you're like i can very easily switch to this and you did and that's one of the greatest joys for me is when i'm able to like <laughs> positively impact those around me because even living at home right now I so I'm vegan and my parents are vegetarian and so my diet is obviously more restricted than theirs and they still eat what they normally would eat but there are certain changes that one they have to make out of necessity for me if we're having something family style that they have to include their non-vegan components after I've been served or in a separate dish um and secondly, they see what I eat every day and they also sometimes eat if I'm the one, they have to eat what I'm eating if I'm the one making the food, you know? And Mm. so by association, they slowly start to eat a little bit healthier, even if it's just so tiny, like maybe even insignificantly so, they are eating a little bit differently. And it's really funny that you bring up the breakfast of toast with, you know, peanut butter and blueberries or almond butter and blueberries because I don't eat that anymore uh, because I usually decide to make something else wild and wacky every day for breakfast. But that's what my parents eat for breakfast now. <laughs> and that's what my brother oh, eats wow. for breakfast now. <laughs> and wow. they, even today, they were like, hey, why don't you eat like toast and blueberries and stuff anymore? You got us on that train and now you left. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, that's what I do. But, you know, I'm I'm also eating other healthy things like uh, the classic uh, millennial thing with avocados and, and whatnot. But I think that that's uh, I think that the malleability over time is definitely present. But we are lucky to have the uh, education and mental capacity to say, yeah, this is a totally logical change and we should definitely do this. And we also have the availability of resources now to be like, yeah, let's 
you know, uh, let's not buy like pizza rolls anymore at, at Ralph's. Let's uh, buy fruits and fresh vegetables, frozen vegetables, whatever, and, and make something healthy. Um, I think the where this becomes especially salient is when people don't have access to to those things, nor do they have the education. Like no one has ever told them like, hey, look, you can make this healthy stir fry in 10 minutes, right? Uh, you got the uh, personalized three-month uh, crash course in, uh, in veggie eating. But most people don't have that luxury. And so I think what ends up happening is a lot of people grow up with certain preferences and they uh, continue living in a society that... Um, that that propagates the same socialization that they grew up with, where like convenience is king, and um, there, no one no one essentially tells them otherwise, right? And that's kind of where the the malleability can no longer take effect, where they kind of go into the same cycle, and then over time, uh, as plasticity theoretically decreases in, in our head, so does our willingness to change certain things about us, right? Right, and um. Yeah, so so uh, I guess I guess going back to 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 what I was saying earlier, where uh, it's interesting that our parents have have this giant effect on us. It's interesting that I'm able to have this giant effect on my parents now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really it really uh, loops back on itself. Yeah, so I guess uh, to that extent, it's uh, a very important investment to raise your children well, because one day they will be raising you. <laughs> yeah. We can have a whole conversation about that. <laughs> there was one thing that I wanted to touch upon, the, uh, like kind of based on the first point that you brought up about like the how how tastes can be tied to to memories, and also very relevant to these things that you've been bringing up with with your brother's uh, proclivity for for certain foods, uh, and then everyone's emotional attachment with uh, the the cutlet. Um, and for that, I've brought our friend Vibov to the show today. Uh, Vibov is a uh, PhD researcher at uh, UC Riverside, and he actually studies uh, things to do with with taste and memory. So, Vibov, we're we're happy to have you here, and I would love to hear some of your thoughts on the neurobiology of taste and and how do we connect uh, tastes and taste memories with either proclivity or aversion from food yeah thanks thanks for having me guys um what what is happening (laughs) that is so funny wow (laughs) what a pleasant surprise bye bob it is so good to hear from you likewise samson uh hope i'm not interrupting no no please welcome interruption (laughs) you just blew my mind to get them just so our listeners don't get confused, the reason Samson is surprised is because I messaged Vibov while we were recording, and totally unbeknownst to Samson, I brought Vibov onto the recording session. Uh, so without further ado, Vibov, please take it away. I want to just mention a couple of caveats uh, to what Gautam said. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I am, after all, a student, so I, I don't profess to be the be-all, end-all uh, knowledge source, but also um, a lot of the work that I, I do kind of focuses on an invertebrate um, model system. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and it also kind of focuses on taste sensation and processing of information. One of the questions we are interested in the long term, though, is is how kind of um, that information gets encoded into memory. So, so in that sense, it is kind of relevant. So um, I guess um, 
in response to, to your, your question, um, it's interesting. So at least the way um, taste sensation works and, and transduction works, right? Like you have your taste receptor cells in your taste buds. Um, in in um, mammals, that's, um, you know, like your your T1R receptors or T2R receptors. There are different classes of taste receptors that are housed within mm-hmm. your taste bud. And then when you come into contact with, um, you know, food of different kinds of modalities, we call them, right? Like um, mm-hmm. salt, sour, bitter, um, umami, uh, sweet. Um, and uh, did I leave one out? Well, in, in, in any case, right, like your, your, your receptors are different kinds of receptors are tuned to different kinds of modalities. Um, and that's mm-hmm. kind of how we under, and it, that's kind of the same idea with, um, the Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit fly, which I work with in, in, mm-hmm. in my lab, where you have, um, different taste organs expressing, um, what are called sensilla. So that's kind of like, I guess the equivalent of a taste bud, which houses a bunch of different neurons that sense. Um, different classes of art that sense different modalities of, of taste information based off of the different repertoire of receptors that are expressed on each neuron. And so that's mm-hmm. how taste is sensed. And then that information obviously goes to, to the brain or kind of the central processing area where that information is processed for both immediate and kind of long-term needs. Right. And so when we talk mm-hmm. about memory, we generally tend to associate kind of the, the long-term uh, relevancy of the information of the sensory information. And so in, in mammals, right, like we know that the hippocampus is kind of this sort of index of memories in the brain, right, where um, memory is encoded and, and kind of stored for later use. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was having this conversation with you, Gautam, uh, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the ideas we were talking about is, is you know, the well, one thing I actually kind of read from uh, a couple of days ago, which is kind of relevant now, um, I, I, some scientist, I forget where I read this, might have been on Twitter or something, but he basically said, you know, we, we think of the hippocampus often as like having a function. And I guess you could kind of break it down into specific functions that it that it does with respect to memory, but really it's an index. It's, it's, it's more of kind of a, a gatekeeper of memories rather than hmm. kind of actually performing executive tasks. Right. And, and so that information is then communicated to other parts of the brain that are more involved with direct execution of behaviors um, relevant to that t- information that might be encoded in the hippocampus in the form of memories. So so taste information um, is 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 kind of one of those streams of information that might be encoded into your your hippocampus. Um, mm-hmm. And oftentimes when we think about food, we we don't like um or we, we have a very um, kind of strong distaste towards um, a lot of times, well, we know that aversive memories are kind of encoded in the hippocampus. And so this would just be one example of the kind of stream of information that mm-hmm. might be encoded if it's a powerful enough memory. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think you were mentioning um, um, uh, proclivities for food that you do like. Mm-hmm. And this is something I'm, I'm less sure about. Because um, from from wh- what I know, um, the way we think about memory and a lot of times the way we, we test memory paradigms, at least in the research papers that I've read, is oftentimes with um, an aversive memory mm-hmm. uh, because that's kind of robust enough and it's often paired with, you know, a, 
you know, there's your, your conditioned stimulus and your unconditioned stimulus that are paired together to create this aversive memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's robust enough for you to understand how it's it's being encoded. But um, I wonder, yeah, I, I actually, um, I'd have to speculate a little bit when, as far as uh, proclivity for, for positive food memories goes. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this, like, all of our conversations are essentially... Uh, speculation and, and armchair philosophy, but I I want to touch upon some some of these things that you've mentioned because I I feel like the um, memories of uh, aversion towards certain foods are definitely the ones that are strongly encoded in my uh, in my memory, and so the the uh, anecdote I brought up with you, Vibov, I think was the grape leaves that I had yes, in yes. Turkey. <laughs> And what happened was I was on a one or two week long trip in Turkey. And in the last uh, half of it, I had uh, a meal of grape leaves and and some other Mediterranean foods. And uh, after that, my stomach was totally shot. And I, for some reason, I don't even know if it was the grape leaves that caused this, but I've always, ever since then, I've always had an aversion to eggplant and grape leaves where I really have to think about it before I eat it. I'm like, okay, why am I averse to this? Okay, like, let's be logical about this. Let's eat it. And then sometimes I still can't get myself to eat grape leaves. But the proclivity for food, um, I, I associate that with memories, but I don't have as strong of an instinctive aversion uh, or as strong of an instinctive attraction as I do an instinctive aversion to things. So some uh, very specific good memories of food I've had uh, include a lot of the um, foods that uh, Samson and I spoke about uh, early, earlier in this podcast and also things like uh, the um, the cake that I had uh, when I was 14 years old that was had a, I was able to customize it and it had a chocolate cheesecake frosting on it. It was just immense. And that sticks in my memory, but it's not something that has as strong of a tie as the aversion does. And my, my thought on this is it could have to do with the innate biological nature of these two things. And the aversion to certain foods definitely has an evolutionary benefit of keeping us away from foods that are potentially harmful. And the attraction to certain foods is also very biological where things that have higher concentration of sugar or uh, higher concentration of nutrients, for example, color, colorful foods are something that are very attractive to us biologically. Those things naturally draw us to it. Um, and so, so I, one part of me thinks that um, there, there's a theory about uh, how how the brain uh, becomes attracted to things in terms of habits and addiction and how certain stimuli can lead to certain actions and how uh, release of dopamine in the brain can precede these actions. So I can imagine that for the sweet stimulus or uh, like the good stimulus, uh, like pizza or burgers or whatever you like eating, you would have more of that uh, dopamine mediated pathway of having pleasure before having pleasure as soon as you perceive that food in your environment and then consumption of that food. Whereas on the other hand, with the hip, uh, hippocampal encoding of these aversive food memories, uh, when you have that food in your presence, you you immediately think I should not eat that for my own uh for the benefit of my digestive tract (laughs) right right (laughs) yeah that's a that's a good point actually um you talk about uh sort of dopamine uh uh, signaling and and that's definitely a a critical component of anything that we find um 
pleasurable or, or hedonic, right? Like any kind of um, uh, kind of information that we get. And you also mentioned one thing you touched on, which is actually definitely relevant when we talk about um, attraction towards foods, is kind of other sort of qualities of the food outside of taste. So you mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, your cake that is you know decorated very nicely. Um, or like if you look at a pizza and if, if just kind of, you know, the, the perfect shape of the pizza, the circular shape and all the toppings kind of is just a very kind of visually sort of, um, appealing thing, you know, right. there's this, there's this idea of what's called this, um, this is kind of explored a lot, um, in, in diabetes research, right. Um, is called the cephalic phase of eating, um, um where prior to the, consumption of food and the ingestion of food other non-taste related qualities have been shown to actually trigger non-trivial amounts of insulin uh release and synthesis in in the body um mm -hmm. so just kind of you know the the aromatic if it food smells very good or if it if it looks visually appealing um and so i'm sure that you know in this cephalic phase there might be um kind of other um, sort of mechanisms and, and systems in play outside of just insulin uh, release that are also at play that kind of prime your body to realize, okay, I'm about to eat something that's going to taste really good. Mm -hmm. uh, and also you have to consider kind of context of, of things like your, your satiety or your hunger state, right? Because, right. you know, when you're hungry, foods that are normally less appealing to you will seem a lot more appealing to you than <laughs> right. Yeah, so so it's kind of interesting, it, and and it feels like a cop out answer, but really, kind of, sort of everything about the context and the environment can kind of play a role in terms of how attractive or even aversive you perceive a food to be. Um, yeah, sure. so, so so I always found that kind of interesting too, because how do you just study taste outside of these other non-taste qualities that affect how you perceive taste? Right. It's a it's a very tightly knit, complex biological system. And I think the the thing with the I think the cephalic phase is a very good example of that, because if we think about, uh, for lack of better terms, cerebrally, if we think about uh, taste and how it gets transmitted to the brain, um, we don't always think about the other physiological effects of thinking about the food. One of my favorite Thai places in San Diego, Kun Thai, uh, it has a, <laughs> a, a very specific effect on the rest of our body, you know, including uh, sweating, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, honestly, it comes with a list of um, side effects, just like most medications do. Mm -hmm. And th those are all things that can also affect our memory of the food itself and our gut instinct uh, to to how how we respond to those foods and so I'm sure that my whole experience there you know sweating and all of that also plays a, a feedback role into my body perceiving that I am sweating or in pain for the next three days and that sort of thing um, and and then learning from that and I think one of the most interesting parts of the cephalic phase is that the the human body, when we when we taste something sweet or, or something like that, um, we automatically have this response, like you're saying, to uh, to produce insulin. And this could be just at the sight of a cake, um, or it could be at the taste or the smell or something like that. The thing with artificial sweeteners is that there there are some studies that show that it could also potentially have an effect on things like the cephalic phase, where 
our body is when we eat something sweet uh, artificially sweetened that is no calorie our body is expecting ingestion of a certain number of calories based on how sweet it is um, or just calories in general and when we're not given those calories sometimes uh, satiety goes down but our body is not totally satisfied so we might eat more or drink more soda or something like that if it does not actually have calories. So it, it's interesting to, to think about that tie between using artificial flavors and kind of tricking our body and not giving what it expects. Because when we eat something sweet, our body is expecting to process sugar. But instead, if it's an artificial sweetener, that kind of ends in our mouth. And then when, when it goes through our gut, it's not always digested and sometimes just uh, excreted in that form. I, I did want to uh, ask you something, Vibhav. Um, mm-hmm. So when... When Gautam was talking about uh, this, the analogous, uh, I guess, equivalent of the aversive response to food, but in the positive context, um, the first thing that came to mind for me is a craving in terms of uh, like having a sudden desire to eat a certain food for whatever reason. And uh, it, it brought me back to conversations that um, Gautam and I have had in the past that go to a more um, philosophical realm of uh, of food and of taste and of cravings in general. And, um, you know, I, I think there's one thing that's interesting here where the way we've described taste uh, in these contexts has been from a neurobiological perspective that is largely um, instinctual or largely based on the environment and has to do with this heavy and learning that happens of how we associate different uh, parts of a food with the environment that we are uh, experiencing it in. But then I, I wanted to get your thoughts on how much control we have in our own sense of, uh, of, of controlling maybe these physiological processes. And, and what I think about is the, uh, I think there's a, a Buddhist um, saying where uh, happiness is the absence of cravings. And cravings is mentioned here in a broad context, you know, not necessarily just with food, but with um, ambition and relationships and with, with anything really. And, you know, th- th- there were times when, for me, for example, when I was uh, studying for the MCAT, um, I would have long days where I you know, I'm doing banks and studying things. And the way I'd reward myself is I would have a craving for oh, like, oh, I really want ramen today, or I really want a California burrito today. And that would be my sort of reward for um, uh, finishing up that day. And then Gautam would mention that a lot of the times he didn't have like, cravings like that anymore, partially because I think he ascribed to a very different diet that didn't have as much know salt and sugar and that kind of thing it's a nice way of putting it (laughs) (laughs) but 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 also i think because of um uh i think a certain level of of self-control that that he was trying to practice in himself and i i I wanted to get your thoughts on what um what top-down ways there might be to control associations we might have with food, with taste, with cravings and things like that, if there was any sort of neurological underpinning to something like that? I know that's a that's a big question, but yeah. if you have any thoughts on that, would love to hear it. No, that's a that's a really, really good question and a very kind of a deep question. I've definitely thought about that. I think, um, like you mentioned, there is this um, 
eternal battle that's going on between kind of your um, top-down kind of needs or, or wants and, and your bottom-up kind of processing of information too. And I think also there's always this battle of, of you know, what um, um, kind of, um, I, I guess what in the context of cravings, I, I would I would kind of think of it as like a, a battle between, you know, your physiological needs and then what you, you know, desire, right? And um, that's really interesting. I, I don't know. So I, I would, as far as like the neurological basis of that and kind of, you know, what sort of determines how steadfast we can be, I think, um, I, I think you mentioned that you, you described Hebbian learning as sort of a process that's definitely involved in, in kind of um, forming these these synaptic connections and strengthening these connections that are relevant when we talk about memory. But I also think that, you know, I, I like to use Hebbian learning as kind of like a, a go-to answer um, when in, in, in cases like this where I'm not really 100% sure of the answer, but I know there probably is some kind of synaptic kind of um, strengthening or, or weakening that's happening in place. And so we talk about heavy and learning this idea of, of you know, um, synaptic wiring, cohesive synaptic wiring um, in the context of a specific sort of stimulus or, or processing of information. I like to think of, of the ability to, I would imagine that, and this is, that this is involved, that, um, you know, uh, the longer, as you mentioned, Gautam, with his stricter diet may not necessarily have these cravings as, as uh, often as maybe you or I do. Um, and that could be because, you know, simply he's kind of adhered to this diet very, you know, conscientiously and for a long period of time to the point where, you know, there's never this drive that's created by this synaptic wiring or this dopaminergic mediated synaptic wiring when we consume junk food or unhealthy food. Um, that maybe you or I might have, at least the extent that you or I might have, because um, it's it's been uh, sort of the culmination of this 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 time that he's spent cultivating this strong diet, right? You always it's it's they always say the same thing about you know like going to the gym, right? The hardest week of going to the gym is the first week, and then right. once you sort of make it a routine, it becomes easier and easier to go until eventually you don't really think about it, and you know we can do the same thing with like food or, or coffee or, or, or chocolate or something, right? Like if we uh, abstain from it for, uh, abstain from like coffee for uh, a week, the first day will be terrible. But by the end of the week, you've kind of sort of not even, you've sort of gotten back to normal if you do this kind of detox. And so um, synaptically, what's going on during that detoxification process, um, I would imagine that there's kind of a lot of rewiring of, synapses that may have been built off of this this um, dopamine-mediated kind of um, um, sort of addiction, for lack of a better word, um, to, to these foods that we know are unhealthy but taste good. Interesting, interesting. So kind of dovetailing off of that um, with this general conversation about food, but uh, I, I wanted to get your thoughts specifically on habits because I feel like that is what my mind is going towards as we're talking about uh, this kind of neurobiological basis of these associations that are that we're making, and what what I'm thinking of in my head right now is, um, have there been any conversations that you've had with people in the neuroscience community about 
the neurobiological basis of making these habits. And, and what I'm interested in is because with cravings and with that kind of association that we make on a neurobiological level, I feel like that is largely unintentional. You know, there, there's something in our uh, environment or something in our experience that then maps these two stimuli together that then elicits a certain response. But what we would want uh, in an ideal world is to have the, the, that kind of heavy and learning that you're talking about happen for things that we specifically want to happen from a habits perspective. And I was wondering if there, if there's been any conversation about taking advantage of the inherent processes that are in our uh, biological system to then um, optimize for the creation of, of these positive associations with habits and things like that. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, that's, that's, um, I guess if I were to, to speculate, I mean, I think a couple of, of, I mean, there's, there's no way to sort of get around the hard work of making good habits, right? Like, you know, putting in the time and, and the effort, um, to sort of create these healthy habits. And I think part of the reason you need to put in the time and the effort to do that is because the instant gratification of the reward simply isn't there, right? So... Um, so I, I guess kind of, um, you know, we have to sort of think about or kind of internalize sort of this, this long-term sort of benefit or, or, or payoff, right. And, and kind of, uh, uh, actualize whatever goal it is that we're working towards by, you know, undertaking these habits. And I think that's kind of, um, um, I guess a good way to kind of, um, explicitly understand what you're working towards right because um you know from a neurological perspective motivation and drive um needs to be towards a certain end point right like you're not you're not um when we kind of even when we think about you know um eating junk food the reason we eat it is because you know we know that taste um will pay off and then you know by pay off we mean there's going to be that surge of, of dopamine when we hit, take that first bite of like that kitkat bar right. right and so being able to kind of understand that, you know, that's kind of what we want to make happen um, over the course of a long-term process for some kind of healthy end outcome um, is important. And I think that also kind of is an important sort of mental health conversation too, when you think about long-term um, benefits and kind of understanding, um, uh, I guess, kind of the, the, the payoff of a long, you know, um, tiresome but you know worthwhile process is just as rewarding as you know the immediate instant gratification you might get from something that might not be as healthy um but then um you know there's also kind of other other things we can do to kind of make sure that our our sort of um um that that we're doing all we can um to sort of put our brain in the right context and in the right conditions to perform at its best to, to kind of make those long-term changes sort of um, more to see them as more attainable. Right. And so one thing I, I think mm -hmm. of a lot, at least in my personal life is, you know, um, reading versus, you know, scrolling on my phone or, right. I always think of kind of, I mean, you should read because not, not for the sake of like some, Oh, I'm going to get smarter because I read this. I mean, you should read because you, you, you enjoy what it is you're reading, right? But when I think mm -hmm. of reading a book, for example, I think of the uh, the long term kind of end goal of reading a book 
is like, oh, you know, I, I read this, I learned something, um, you know, I gained a new perspective from someone else. Um, you know, I feel like I, I legitimately feel like I came away a little bit smarter than I was before I started reading this book. Um, right. Versus what you could have done in those same 30 minutes before bed was just scrolling on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Mm -hmm. And you, you, it satisfies your immediate urge, your instant gratification. Right. But, um, when you think about the next day, when you wake up, you're like, was that, you know, a great use of my time? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But if you read a book, I mean, or if you read, you know, at least a little bit of a book, you're like, okay, well I got this much. And I, I like the example of a book too, because there's, a literal endpoint, and you can, you know, explicitly chart your way through that goal. You know, you're on page 300 out of 500. You're you're 60% of the way there, um, and so you, you kind of also get a sense of how long the process takes. But hopefully, by the end of it, you realize it's worthwhile. Those are kind of like just sort of big picture, not very you know scientific kind of thoughts I, I had. Well, no, I that think was great. That, that was great. I, I was just asking about big picture anyway, so really appreciate that. I think that yeah. some of the things that you brought up ha- have to do with uh, Samson's earlier comment about the concept in Buddhism of being able to separate yourself from cravings. Because I, I, I had a great conversation a couple of days back uh, about this specific topic where I, I think the, the conclusion I was able to come to is that one of the incredible differences between humans and other animals uh, is our ability to modulate how we execute uh, or how our desires manifest. And the I think the one very big thing that separates us from uh, other animals uh, is that we have very conscious awareness of what we are doing and we can change that regardless of, um, or we can change that based on our idea of if that is something that is good for us or something that is bad for us or if we think that that is something we're doing impulsively and habitually or if it's something we're doing out of choice and i think that that power that we have like for example reading a book when when we could otherwise be scrolling twitter um so twitter or facebook or any, any of these other things that are, are naturally uh, addictive are addictive because of their uh their their nature of of novelty and constantly like being able to show us something new and biologically that's ingrained in our head to for us to be attracted to those things and so it's it's very it makes sense that we are are drawn towards those things are are drawn towards these addictive stimuli but i think the the power of the human brain uh comes into play when we say i know that this is something that is addictive and I can consciously make the effort to rather read uh, two pages of a book um, or, or, or exercise or something like that, even when we know that there is not going to be any instant gratification from that. I think the primordial brain and perhaps the brain of other animals, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm speculating, is much more uh, driven by immediate gratification. And in terms of survival, that is what has benefited us for for the longest term. Like uh, finding fruits that are very colorful, finding fruits that are high in sugar, uh, being able to outsmart uh, big animals that will feed uh, a giant population, being able to farm and and have the mental capacity to do that. Uh, Some of those things have required some planning and required some uh, not immediate gratification, but a lot of those things that got us to that point 
were through all of these processes that are basically b- based on uh, immediate gratification. And the the other thing that that you were mentioning that tied into another thing I've been thinking about is this. Uh, Samson mentioned uh, how how can this be tied to habits. And uh, Vibe of you also mentioned like, okay, when you are addicted to something, uh, detoxing has is like a very long process. And I, I had a, a recent conversation with a, a neuro professor and we were discussing um, addiction and we were discussing habits and we were discussing the neurobiological basis for this and what the current theories are. And interestingly enough, uh, also a dopamine mediated pathway, when you have a stimulus that bypasses the prefrontal cortex and directly goes to uh, action, um, that is strengthened over time by multiple exposure and and constantly bypassing the prefrontal cortex uh, makes that somewhat of a- an addiction. And basically what happens is you start doing certain things without conscious decision-making, and, and that's what an addiction is. And as the dopamine signaling goes through that pathways and makes it stronger and stronger and stronger, we become more addicted to that thing. And because of that, uh, detox and, and, and uh, reducing uh, stimulus from these uh, addictive stimuli and, and reducing our, uh, our, our nature of, of pursuing these uh, addictive stimuli uh, is a very long and hard process. And one of the, the things is that addiction is not a life sentence, so you can definitely recover from it. However, the pathways that are made in your brain that are strengthened through dopamine signaling are likely going to stay for a long time, which is why relapsing into an addictive behavior, whatever it may be, can be very easy. And I've seen that in my own life where, you know, I've gone years without using Facebook. And then the moment I download it on my phone again, I'm I'm back to scrolling. Like I've I've regained that old habit as though I'd had it this whole time. So it's interesting that that, um, the the addiction and the the pathway in your brain is likely still there but recovery is a very long process that can overshadow that pathway with better pathways and in terms of like reading for eventual gratification or reading for uh knowing that it's going to to do us good a hundred percent and i i think um it's like you mentioned this you know we always you know, dopamine is almost like a buzzword now for when we think about addiction, right? But dopamine-mediated right. signaling is is so robust and so strong that, as you mentioned, it, it takes a lot of time and, and work to, to sort of weaken those, um, you know, addictive, quote-unquote, synapses that we've, we've formed. Um, mm-hmm. But what you mentioned also about bypassing the prefrontal cortex, I actually didn't know that. That's very interesting, and that would make sense given, you know, how critical the prefrontal cortex is in decision making and and preparation of of kind of uh, decisions and and, and kind of conscious, I guess, um, evaluation of of, uh, choices. Yeah, man. Wow. What what a discussion. So Vibe, I know you weren't here at the beginning, but our our conversation started off with uh, talking about food and and how it is generally like a a social lubricant and, and gets us to uh, to connect with others in, in situations that we otherwise would not connect. And from there, we started talking about uh, these uh, different experiences that we've had with food. And, and we spoke about a bunch of different anecdotes we had. And, and Samson proposed these questions about the 
uh, natural attraction we have to certain foods like his mother's cutlets and pizza. And he mentioned the neurobiology and attraction uh, to uh, our, our, our biological attraction to certain foods or aversion. And that's why I, I wanted to bring you on. So thank you so much for, for spending uh, your afternoon with us. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, that was the best surprise. It was so good to hear your voice. <laughs> Man, well, with, with that, we will uh, we will end this episode. So thank you for joining us, and thank you to our future selves for listening. And uh, we will catch you in the next one. That was so funny that Vibov came on. That was really good. You sneaky, sneaky man. <laughs> <laughs>